And so you have just a small pocket of people in this promised land. They don't own any of the dirt at this point. Abraham, Isaac, Isaac to Jacob. Jacob has these sons. If you remember uh, old Joseph, he's like, <laughs> one day y'all are going to bow down to me. And they're like, that's funny. You're sold into slavery off to Egypt with you. So they just leave him for dead. He goes down to Egypt. God blesses him. All of a sudden there's a famine. His whole family comes down there, this whole big reveal. And then that's the end of Genesis. It's like Joseph is there. The family's there. It's just these 12 brothers and their family. The next thing you know, you pick up the book of Exodus, right? And now it's Moses leading this nation of Israel back to the promised land, Grand Central Station. And God tells Moses, hey, I will be your God. You're going to be my people. From there, all the world coming through that narrow sliver of land, all the world is going to see like you have a God that loves you, is guiding you, and you're just going to be my witnesses, Okay, so when you envision Moses leading them out, how many people do you envision? How many of you know the right answer? Nobody's confident. Okay, so when you think Moses, Moses lead Exodus, right? How many do you think? Three. Well, that would be a lot. Three hundred million. That's like the world population today. I don't know what. It, yeah, uh, it's not three hundred. One million. So it's six hundred one thousand seven hundred thirty men of fighting age, age 20 and up. Those are just the warriors, plus women and children. You're talking easily two to three million people that Moses is leading through a desert for 40 years. We're not in the most populated state. That's more or less like the big cities in Iowa. Everybody get together and let's just go on a hike. And they're camping out in tents and they're going. So that's where we're setting it up in Numbers chapter 25. That's what's happening. This opposing king like sees them coming. They're like, hey, can we just pass through? He's like, no, you're going to destroy everything just if you walk through. And so he calls Balaam. He's like, Balaam, curse him. And Balaam's like, okay, I'm going to curse him. And he just blesses him. And the king's like, that's not what I asked you to do. He's like, I don't know what overcome me. King moves him around tries to curse him again four times. All he can do is just bless him, bless him, bless him. And so the king's like, okay, if God is for them, who can stand against them? But he doesn't give up. He says, if I can't inflict them from the outside, maybe I can do something from within. And I'm just telling you, I believe Satan still works this way, where if you're God's, you're an adopted child, Satan can't touch you. In the name of Jesus, like you are covered. But I do believe, though, although early on in Genesis it says his head is crushed, but he's going to strike at your heel, I still think Satan uses the same tactic to strike at our heel a little bit. And that's where we're picking up, Numbers 25. So that sets the context. That's your Old Testament flyover. From there, if you want to continue, I'll give you the rest of my $2 seminary degree, and I'll tell you about the judges and prophets and all that stuff. But for there, that's where we're at, Numbers 25. No reading ahead, because this is going to be fun, okay? Uh, your title might say, Moab seduces Israel. Okay, make no mistake, this is intentional. And so when Israel lived in Shittim, the people began, and this is, uh, again, Numbers 25, verse 1, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These, these daughters of Moab, these people, uh, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their little g gods. So Israel yoked himself with Baal of Peor, 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of among the people and hang them. You might have a, like a little, uh, little A, you go down. The other word for that is impale them. Them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill or impale those of his men who have yoked themselves with Baal of Peor. Okay, stop there. They're supposed to be an example. Remember, the whole point of this is they are going to the promised land where they are going to make God known to the world. Somewhere along the way, they see these little G gods, Baal of Peor, these foreign women, and they get distracted. These women entice the men sexually, and with that, as they unite themselves in that way, they bow down to this little G God, they worship, they are cheating on their wives. I can only imagine, like, I'm just thinking, what about these kids? Like, as they watch their dad, like, hook up with this foreign woman. Like, they were not secret about this. They just went for this. And again, you have to remember Israel's highlight reel at this point. They just come out of Egypt. God had just done 10 plagues. They plundered, literally plundered Egypt took their gold, took their livestock, just took everything. God brings them out of slavery. They're walking like they got the gold grill, the gold chain. Like they're just set. They've got all the livestock. They walked across the Red Sea that was parted on dry land, watched the most powerful army in the world get drowned. They are being led by a pillar of fire. God just gave them a bunch of water out of a rock. They're like, well, in Egypt, we at least had some meat to eat. And God's like, here, here's so many quail that you're going to literally be waist deep in this bird. Is that enough meat for you? God does all that. They literally eat manna from heaven out of nowhere. In the middle of the night, God drops down food for two, three million people every day. And they literally eat this food that comes from heaven out of nowhere. Just pick it up, eat it on a daily basis. These highlight reel full of manna, this pillar of... So with these bellies full of manna, this pillar of fire, and God having done all with gold that they plundered as they're moving to this incredible promised land. They're like, ooh, little G gods. I'll go worship them. I'll sleep with this woman. Does that make sense? Do you feel a little bit like superiority to Israel right now? You're like, those guys are idiots. Okay, that would be okay. That would be common to be like, they done gone messed, messed up, right? Some way. How are we going to do this? Guys, if you went through your highlight reel, my guess is you've seen God do some pretty cool things too, right? Some of you have seen God miraculously heal people. Some of you have seen God just radically transversely heal lives. Perhaps all of you have heard, like, seen God's lives. Perhaps all of you have heard, like, seen God just answer a prayer request and do something that only he can do. Some of you have felt that even in worship. I remember just... Hands, like just God is just right there. And hours, days, weeks later, those same hands that are raised in worship, you know, are, are acting in sinful ways. And so before we cast too much judgment on Israel, I think it's right to recognize we have a little bit of that. And then two, I think this brings up another question. You see in verse four, what does God say? Lord said to Moses, hey, uh, <laughs> verse four, what does God say? Lord said to Moses, hey, uh, take all the chiefs among the people and impale them. 
interpretation. And so you might be asking again without reading ahead, man, God seems angry in the Old Testament. Like this wrath, like what is going on? And is that different than the New Testament? And I think that's a valid question to, to ask that is going to get answered in the text as we keep reading. But again, understand what just happened. God has given them this command. Moses, you tell the judges of Israel to kill their brothers. Moses, you tell the judges of Israel to kill their brothers. And if you haven't been in this narrative, get ready. Okay. Then, in verse 6, an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay, time out. Stop, stop, stop. No eyes up. No reading ahead. Understand the context here. Moses, like these, they're just weeping over the brokenness. The whole assembly is there. God has just given them this word like, this is what needs to happen. And they are expressing this brokenness for their brothers, brokenness towards sin. And again, I just can't imagine the scene. And here, this, this guy, we're going to learn later in verse uh, 14, his name is uh, Zimri. And that, that Zimri, if you're wondering like what that Israel, uh, what that means in, in the original Hebrew language, Zimri translates to dirtbag, okay? No, that's not true. That's not true. It actually means praiseworthy is what his name was. Like, oh, there's praiseworthy. What's he doing? I, apparently he's going to go shack up with that lady. Like that's Zimri boldly just walks past everybody as they're weeping over this sin. He's like, oh, what, this sin? And just walks shamelessly in broad daylight. I'll just say this. Sometimes sin can create callousness where you don't even feel bad for sin. Just because you don't feel bad doesn't mean it's okay. <laughs> right? I don't think Zimri, I don't think he feels bad. Should he? Absolutely. But he's just so calloused, so hardened in front of his family. <laughs> he doesn't even try and like do it in secret, get a hotel room, meet her there over lunch hour. He's just like, nope, broad daylight, everybody. This is what's happening. Sin can callous your heart so my question would be, if you're there praying and everybody's praying and you watch this happening, what would your response be? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever been put in that, that position where like somebody is like in sin, maybe you see this interaction happening in public, you're like, oh, what do I do? I mean, this is a bold one. What do you do? Well, here we go. Verse seven and eight, read with me. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose and left the congregation, took a spear in, into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus, the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Okay, you understand the scene. Phineas sees this. He, he's not one of those that was given the command. He's not a judge. He's a priest. He's supposed to be doing sacrifices. He's but he sees this. He is just so moved. Can you imagine the scene? Everybody's weeping. They're crying. Phineas grabs a spear and just marches after them. And again, hopefully it's not lost on you. You guys are mature adults. One shot gets both people. Right? Zealousness for the Lord. 
without question and without delay. And here's the thing, zeal, I don't, I don't want us to equate zeal with like this, like to think like that there's this violent act that he, Phineas is like angry. Perhaps even with tears in his eyes, just wiping them away, just saddened by the sin of his brother, he's going after them. And so zeal is not this, this like gruesome act of running somebody through with a wooden spear. I think zeal is like this God's command. God is being dishonored here. And so sin was and is a serious matter, and the consequence is death. And so, puts them to death. And it says in verse 9, Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000 people. Now, the question I was asking Todd, uh, Pastor Todd here today, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> like, was that 24,000 people had been stabbed? And like, this is the, the, the 24,000-1, is, this is the last one that got impaled? Uh, or was it more like God had broken out a plague and people were just like dropping dead and they were about like getting ready to go impale their brothers? And Phineas is like the first one who's like, okay, I'll impale them and does that. And then the plague stops. I don't know. It's really irrelevant though. The reality is all you need to deduct is because of their sin, 24,000 of them died. How they died, was it a plague from the Lord? Was it by their brothers? I don't know. But the consequences for sin was death. That's what we do know. And the plague was stopped, ultimately, through one man's jealous commitment to the Lord. By pinning a man, now hear this connection, this is going to answer one of our questions. By, so was, the plague was stopped through one man's jealous commitment to the Lord by pinning a man through with a wooden spear. Unless you think the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of New Testament, trust this. God's jealousy and his glory still stands. And here's the thing. The plague of sin was stopped through one man, Christ Jesus, being pinned to a wooden cross. It's not altogether that different, right? Do you see the connection? Sin equals death there Death was paid through a wooden spear because of the New Testament. The sin was paid. Still wood involved, still a pinning, but the sin was paid. Still cross for involved, still a sin. God is Jesus Christ being pinned to the cross for the sake of our sin. God has not changed. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ was the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. God has always hated, always hated sin, always will. Even though we perhaps might grow complacent with it, to him it's a serious matter. And so to, to read this, it'd be a bad application. It was like, well, whew, spear, we're under the New Testament. Jesus, grace, he took the punishment. Woo, like we're free. In fact, it, Paul's writing the Romans like, we're so free. Like, I don't think it matters what we do anymore. Paul's like, that's not the case. And so what can happen is you hear this, you're like, now we can become a grace abuser because Jesus has forgiven us. It's like, now we can become a grace abuser because Jesus has forgiven us. It's like a get out of jail free. We can do whatever. That's not true. Nor is it true that like we should have this defeatist mentality. It's like we're going to overcome it. There's truth to that. But to, to, to say the severity and the frequency is always going to be there is just kind of like this defeatist mentality. And it, what it does is ultimately you're saying, God who lives within me is just not that powerful. God can't help me overcome this sin in my life. God can't help me overcome addiction. And what you're saying says more about what, how big you think God is, how powerful addiction. Yeah, he can raise the dead. What, how big you think God is, how powerful you think God Yeah, he can raise the dead. Yeah, he can prepare eternal life. But I don't know if he can help me. Act. makes little of God. 
And we can't have that mentality because God says, no, you're to be holy as I am holy. The whole epistles, when you read the New Testament, clearly Paul assumes, yeah, you can actually grow in holiness because I'm writing these things to you so that you would actually walk in obedience. And so to just say, well, this is, we just give up. No, and, and we're called to pursue that. It increases, no, and, and holy pursue that. It increases our witness. Serve as an affirmation to the truth we proclaim. What I mean, let me do it in the inverse. First Thessalonians, and I wish I had this on slide, but First Thessalonians 4, you can look this up later. This one cut me to the core. First um, Thessalonians 4 says this, that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. But no one transgress or wrong his brother in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Here's the question that I have to that leader or that professing Christian that says, I love God, I trust God. But my life of impurity lives in denouncement of the truth that I proclaim. Does that make sense? It's contradictory. Hey, you ought to trust God. I don't. I don't trust him for what he says for purity. I don't trust him what he says for generosity. I don't trust him what he says like in terms of community. Does that make sense? It's like you should really trust Jesus. What, you, just with your sin? But when it comes to your life and your pleasures, that's all you? Does that make sense? And so what he's saying here in 1 Thessalonians, like how much can you live in denouncement of the gospel? That's where I ask somebody to be on leadership. It's like, how can you go to a group of young men or young women and, and try and point them to Jesus with your words while your life is pointing them in a completely different direction? Your life is saying, well, I trust that actually pleasure is to be found here and impurity, pleasure is to be found in doing things your way, not God's way. There's to be a conflict, and so I'm not here like to land that and like, well, here's the rule, you know. If you look at pornography once every two months in a week, then you're probably good. But if it's any shorter than that, you know, then, then you're off leadership. No, but I think it ought to be telling. Man, I remember though asking that as a as somebody early on in like the college ministry. I'm like, but but how far is too far, and and where's the line at? And I remember the leader just, he knew what I was asking. I was like, how close to sin can I get and still be okay? <laughs> and I remember they're asking, he's like, really? Is that what you would do with like a grenade? Like how close can I stand and not be killed? It's like, no, the, the call from Ephesians is like, you should actually flee. You should run from sexual immorality. You should have nothing to do with it. These things shouldn't even be mentioned amongst you. And so I just want to ask the question, do we view sin? Do we view those things that, again, here's God's command. Here's missing the mark, wherever that is. Phineas has just committed. This is what God said. This is what God has. I trust his promises. I trust where he's leading us. I'm fully with him. Therefore, I hate everything that's not that. 
There's a righteous jealousy and a protection for this thing here. And so it ought to manifest. And so we can't say, I'm zealous. I am, I am jealous for God and his commands. But I am very okay with everything kind of in this gray area. I don't think murder is good. And I don't think we should do that. But this gray area, I'm okay with it. And saying, no, if this is true, you're jealous for God and his commands, then therefore we hate sin. Scripture does not perpetuate like this enslaved mindset. If we're slaves to Christ, we can no longer be slaves to sin. Romans 6 says this. We know that ourselves were crucified, that we no longer are enslaved to sin. And I would ask, again, how frequent does something have to be to be called in slavery? Is it, I remember asking somebody like that. They're like, I only look at pornography and masturbate once a week. That's pretty good. I used to do it once a day. I was like, man, if I got drunk once a week, would you say I was a drunkard? <laughs> like, I don't. <laughs> Anyways, but we should no longer be enslaved. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin, he says in, in Romans 6.11, and alive to Christ Jesus. Let no sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. We have God within us, the Holy Spirit, and so we don't have to live enslaved to sin. I remember that being the most freeing thing. What I'm trying to tell you is, is I think this is clearly this, the call from Scripture, from Old Testament all the way through New Testament, is to pursue righteousness, to obey God. And I feel like it's the most loving thing I can do for you to encourage you that. Not to reset the bar somewhere where scripture doesn't and say, as long as you're like getting a little bit better every year, like that's okay. It's not my every year, like that's okay. It's not my privilege to redraw the line. More do I think like that that's healthy. It'd be like my daughter's where it's like, hey, if you drink the whole bottle of poison, it'll kill you. But if you just want to have a little sippy, you can do that. That's not kind. And I have to trust that if this is what God says, let's just take sex and purity. If this be best for me to come alongside a couple that's dating and say, man, I want to hold you to this. I don't think actually being sexually immoral by doing things outside of marriage is actually going to benefit your relationship. And I know that firsthand because as I was not perfectly pure with my wife, it's like, yeah, okay, we didn't have, uh, we didn't have perfect, we just, these things in between. We didn't, have, uh, we didn't have sex, we just, these things in between. And I remember three years into stinking marriage, I was in ministry, the women. Just wanted to meet with her, talk about it. My wife says, I don't know if I can trust you to meet with her in a public place. I said, I think you have an issue. I don't know what you're talking about. Why? She said, here's the thing. You were willing to do something sexual, something physical with a woman that was not your wife. Three years ago, when we were dating, what makes me think that you're not still that person today? What makes me think that you're not still that person today? No response to that. Because I did not protect her purity, because I wasn't faithful to my wife, and again, at that time, I didn't know it was going to be her, but because I was impure outside of marriage, she said, how can I trust you now? Again, these things, this gray that we can kind of sometimes live in and accept, it's like, I just don't want us to be drawing lines, certainly where our culture says. God knows that ain't what he would want. And I don't want it to even be like what our just assume like Christianity. 
Because there are, there are guys out there right now preaching from the pulpit that would tell you as long as you listen to worship music while you masturbate, it's a God-honoring thing. Oh, my word. Show me that in Scripture. Like, does that make sense? So I just want to be rightly worked up about this because, again, I think we do a disservice when we lower the bar, when we set the standard apart from God's, and we say, you know what? I'm not so concerned with what God would have. And here, let me find you an easier way, a roundabout way. You can be selfish. You can do your money, whatever. Again, does that make sense? And so let us have a right zeal, a right commitment And it makes me want to look at my life, look what I'm consuming, look what I'm watching, look at my interactions and saying, am I actually just taking pleasure in the very things that Christ died for? Leonard Ravenhill, a pastor, he said, is what you're living for worth Christ dying for? I want to have that eternal perspective and live a life holy, sold out to the Lord. Man, and I am so encouraged with how this is happening. This week, Brock Parks, he's one of our, our high school seniors, after a, a basketball game with just another school, said, hey, can we actually get the whole team together, coaches, and can we just pray together? There's been some stuff. I think there was a kid that punched another kid out and like the shake hands line. It's like, that's not great. And so Brock's response to that is like, I mean, I'm encouraged by like that. I would call that a right zeal. I think of Riley who's up here singing that's like, yeah, I'm willing to take my summer and serve overseas on a missions trip. I think of Kelsey, who's been coming to college ministry here, choosing to give her time and energy to, to kind of get these things started. What does living a zealous life look like? Romans tells us this. Therefore, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. And he goes on in, in Romans 9 and 11 say, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Guys, I just want to have the right standard tonight and a right response. And I just want to ask you, do you hate your sin? Perhaps one of the things that you could even just do right now just in, in by way of reflection, it's just asking the Lord, God, would you reveal things in my life that don't align with you? And just would you allow the Holy Spirit, that's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction. And even right now, or even perhaps the whole message long, you're like, I know what God hates in my life right now. And here's the thing, God doesn't hate you, but God does hate sin, those things that are against his will for you. And here's the thing. You don't have, that doesn't have to be part of your identity. You don't like have to own that. You can put that off. And so when somebody says, Stan, Jesus is patient. You seem to lack patience. I don't have to get my feelings hurt and be like, oh. It's like, actually, yeah, I hate that about myself too. I want to be done with that. But some of us, it's, it's kind of like, I had kids, but kids will get these poopy diapers sometimes. This happened at our small group last night. Kid just pooped his pants. And it's like, okay, time to change you. And like, no. It's like, and I remember like reasoning with the kids. It's like, you want to sit in a poopy diaper? And it's like, I don't know if there's something that's like, well, it's warm and it's mine. Like, I'm just going to keep it. And it's like, okay. And I feel like we have that towards sin where it's like, I don't know. I don't like it, but it's, it's part of me now. It's like, please, no. 
child, let's get that diaper off. And I would say, believer, what I'm telling you, I don't want this to be harsh and heavy handed. I'm like, do you want to live a life where you're killing yourself with sin? Do you want to try and pray and say, God, would you do this for me? Meanwhile, I'm going to, do you want to try? And I would just, God, would you do this for me? Meanwhile, I'm going to dishonor you in this way. And I would just point to you as the text continues, the cool thing about this is there's blessing for, for Phineas. God says, because of your zeal, you're blessed. And the thing I get jacked about, he's like, not only you, but stinking your descendants. You're all blessed. Because of your zeal for me, your right zeal with your kind of college time, your right zeal for potentially church planning in your job, your right zeal for what we're kind of doing, your right zeal now has implications. Not just today. Your right zeal now has implications. But generationally. So I want to call us to be about the things that God is about. In love, those things that are, are killing your soul, in loving kindness, I would have to say, help you have freedom. 2 Timothy 2.22, and again, if I would have been better on slides, we'd read this together. But he says this. This is the two-hand approach. He says, flee the evil desires of youth. Flee that stuff and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It's not just staying away from this. It is about pursuing the Lord. It's not just staying away it is about pursuing the Lord and pursuing the Lord together. I just want to encourage you. And so I'm going to have the men, actually, if you guys would stand up. Go ahead and stand up. Women, I would just want you to take note. It's not a competition, but if it were, the men are killing you tonight. Uh, there's like three times as many men here. Uh, but men, if we just level, God has given you guys strength. God has given you guys the ability to lead. And I just would want to commission you to use that to protect your sisters in Christ, to use that gifts, however God's given you that, to build up the body, to lay a foundation for Lord willing what will be your future family. Do you hear me? You guys have that ability to be pace setters and I would want to call you to it that you would be men amongst a stinking boyish culture that you would be men that derive your strength from the Lord and walk humbly, but walk boldly. You follow me? And I'm just going to invite the gals to stand up with you. You guys can stay standing. Gals, I would just say this. Whether these men accept that challenge or not, you don't have to slow your pace down. Well, you might have to because you're married to one, so you got to follow his leadership. But, but the reality is, gals, I would want to encourage you to be pace setters. That God is your daughters of the king, that, that you guys would make an eternal impact and use your gifts to build the body, to build up your brothers, and to make much of Jesus. And I just would want to commission you guys to be a part of that. And it's through this group right here, the men and women, that I think all of us, you have to understand the responsibility that I think God has given you to really set a pace in the life of the local church, but just for the kingdom. How many movements have started with college-age people that are willingly to surrender uh, to just use their lives and go out there? And I can't help but think of you guys as a young married couple that's ready to go on a church plan. Um, and then, do we have any songs? Yeah, we got another worship song. So let's just pray together. 
If you just bow your heads, and I would just invite you right now to create the space and just ask God, Lord, is there anything right now that I'm doing in terms of life that is denouncing the gospel that I proclaim? Would you just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that? Poopy diaper, if you will. And would you just say, I'm just asking, do you want to keep that? Or do you trust that there actually is ability to be free from that because of the power of the Holy Spirit? Not your willpower, but do you believe that the Holy Spirit can actually free you from that? You can kind of answer under your breath, yeah or no. I have to believe that Jesus, who gave his life for us, that God who sent his son, will additionally give us the strength to walk in obedience, to do what he actually is commanding us to do throughout Scripture. And so, God, we do. We just want to trust you, and we want to proclaim you with our words and with our lives. That's our prayer. And God, would you allow this group, would you allow us the joy that comes from following your footsteps, Jesus? from following the example you've set. So God, would there just be joy for I think guys like David that are helping start this ministry and leading out, God, would there just be joy for all those that walk in obedience to you? That's our prayer, and we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.